Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent just meaning arrival. And so um, traditionally, we have um, an Advent wreath and candles to be lit. And so Cody and Chandler Schutz will come up. Cody and Chandler lead our high school ministry, and uh, we love them. I think they're doing a terrific job leading our students to the Lord. And the high schoolers are very excited. They, they clapped very loudly when I said your name. Um, but they're going to lead us in the lighting. <laughs> Wake up. At, um, they're going to lead us in the lighting of the first candle. All right, so as Jeremy was saying, um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Cody Schutz. I'm the high school pastor here, and this is my wonderful bride, Chandler, who helps me run the high school ministry. Um, I couldn't do it without her. And um, we have the pleasure today um, of lighting the first of the candles, the Hope Candle. So, Yes, so today's Advent candle is the Hope Candle. It is also known as the Prophecy Candle because it symbolizes the promises delivered through the Old Testament prophets as well as the hope we now have in Christ. So we're going to read two scriptures today, um, but I think it's how fitting it is for us to be up here sharing about the Hope Candle um, because if your morning went anything like ours did, like it was, it was a rough one. It was a rough one. Just waking up for some of us in this room, it, it was hard for us just to, to get here, to this place, to worship. Um, but look at us, we're here and we have hope in that. So our first scripture comes out of Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16 says this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute just, justice and righteousness in all the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As we go to light the candle, I, when I read this, I, I just, I think of the 400 years of silence. I think of, of what kind of hope we had to have um, not hearing from the Lord for 400 years and and then just the hope of, of a baby taking his first breath in a manger. And that 400 years suddenly made sense. So for some of us, we might be in that 400 years of silence season 
of our lives. Some of us, we're just waiting to see the hope. Some of us, we're just waiting to hear the cry of, of little baby Jesus and, and to find our way to him. So let, let this day, let this day be the day you find hope here. Let's pray. Lord, we just, we thank you for hope. Lord, I think um, as we do life, there's so many times that we run thin on hope, Lord, and I, I think we, we miss the point that, it, that, Lord, even in our suffering, even in our hard times, Lord, even in broken marriages and unruly children, and um, Lord, even in, for high school or school in general, um, Lord, there is hope. You are here. Jesus has come. Lord, and not only did he fulfill the prophecy that was given um, to the Israelites, Lord, but he promised that he was going to be coming again. So we have hope in that today. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Cody and Chandler. Thank you, Mallory. You go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew. I didn't say Exodus. I said Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 1. We'll be in Matthew chapter one this morning. Uh, we love Cody and Chandler and their ministry. And if you have a high schooler who's not in the, our student ministry, I just, they're missing out. Uh, and I don't say that as a marketing thing. I say, I don't know many guys who love high schoolers as well and as deeply and Christ-like way as Cody and Chandler. So I just wanna encourage you to have your kids involved in that. And they're volunteers, so thank you all for that. We're starting a new series this morning called The Birth of a King. So this will be our Advent series, beginning um, a study through the book of Matthew. And so we're gonna start in Matthew chapter one this morning. On the screen now will be some scripture we're gonna use uh, for the morning. So if you wanna write these down, just so you can see that I'm not making it up. Sometimes it's good for you throughout the week to go back and see what was actually read um, out of this context. And so I just want you to, to take all that here uh, this morning with you. It is the beginning of our Advent study. Advent is a Latin term, which means arrival. And so historically, the study of Advent, the the season of Advent is meant to look at the birth of Jesus, his first coming, and then to make us as Christians hopeful for his second coming. We believe that Jesus will come again to establish a new heavens and a new earth, to establish his throne on, on the earth. And so we look forward to that day where there's no more sickness and, and crying and tears and pain. We look forward to that day. So Advent is meant to help us to look back, but also to look forward while we're looking back. So what I thought we would do for the next three weeks is study the genealogy of Jesus which sounds a lot like studying the building of the tabernacle for a month and a half. Uh, but I think this is, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable, it's useful for us. And we just breeze through some of these stories and we miss the impact of what's being said here. So we're gonna read today Matthew chapter one, verses one through six. It's just the first section. Matthew has broken up the genealogy into three different sections, three groups of 14 generations. And in this first section, we're gonna see here is actually the story of Israel. It'll take us from Abraham to David. It's, it's Israel's story. The next section will take us through the kings. It'll start at King David and take us through just the roller coaster ride of the kings of Israel. And then after that, uh, the third section is the story of, of the Hebrews, the Jews, the Israelites in Babylonian exile. And so we'll study that and it's in their exile then they get the promise of the hope of a Jesus to come, a Messiah to come. So we'll study that in a few weeks and we'll continue through Matthew uh, the rest of, of this month. But let's begin, Matthew chapter one, verse one. The book, 
of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram and Ram the father of Amminadab and Amminadab the father of Nashon and Nashon the father of Salmon and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of David the king and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Let's pray and ask God to help us. God, we need you today to study your word. Um, you, the Holy Spirit is the great teacher. And so we need him to help us today as we open up these words, these ancient words of old, that they may not be black and white words on a page, God, but they would be words full of life and power today. So would you give us your eyes to see it, your ears to hear it, God, may this Holy Spirit himself teach us and instruct us and take my words of flesh and turn them into words of power and spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Now, Christmas and family brings up all sorts of stuff for us, doesn't it? Uh, if you think about family and Christmas gatherings, some of us have great fond memories. Some of us have really painful memories. Some of us are excited to gather with family this year. Some of us would rather not do that at all this year. And so it brings up a number of different things for us. What we're studying here this morning is um, Jesus's origin. So verse one says it's the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This word genealogy is actually a Greek translation of a Hebrew word by which we get the name Genesis. The Greek word actually means origin. This is the book of the origin of Jesus Christ. The origin. I don't know how many of you are like Marvel or DC Comics fans, um, but you can tell who they are. Uh, but they, um, Mar Marvel, you'll get it later. Um, they, this whole thing happened in the past five, five, 10, 15 years where we now do prequels to movies. Like we don't have any original content. Now we have to need to add on to old content. And so we do prequels, which are just origin stories of villains or origin stories of heroes. And the point is to help us understand how the hero or villain got to where they are today. Everyone has an origin story. Matthew chapter one, verse one is Jesus' origin story. This is his story. In counseling, we call this the family of origin, where you study your family of origin. A number of years ago, when actually up until the beginning of this year, um, I was in counseling, uh, Meredith and I were in counseling together, and I was in counseling, and just some things that happened, I needed to get under some evil and just darkness in my heart. And I remember studying it with the counselor, working through my family of origin. And it wasn't in a way to just bring up old things and rehash old stuff. It was a way to begin to understand, how did I get to where I am? Why, to quote Michael Scott, why are you the way that you are? So I had to understand why am I this way? Um, and so you'll understand this when I make just one statement about who I am and a lot is going to make sense to you, all right? I'm the oldest of six kids and I have five younger sisters. And you're like, oh, well, that makes sense. The genes make sense now, I get it. I understand <laughs> why, I get it. I get the all black in the morning. It makes perfect sense. I understand. Right? So there are things in our origin that hopefully help us to make sense of the present. Now, we can just read through the genealogy and completely miss all of it if we want to. But I just, I would rather not. Like, I would rather study the words that God has given us to study. So this is the family of origin for Jesus. So please understand that. Matthew is a Jewish man writing a Jewish book, a Jewish gospel to Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah. This whole book is rooted in that. And what's happened for the Jews at the time of Matthew's writings, they've missed Jesus, they've missed it. 
They've completely missed who he is because they're looking for a Messiah that's nothing like what they were promised. And what's happened for the Jews and what happens for us is we begin to build our own ideals about what life and about what Jesus is like, not based on the words of scripture, but based on the words of culture, based on the words of politicians, based on the words of influencers. This is how we try to build our ideal. So here's my goal for us over the next three weeks is that we don't miss Jesus. I don't want us to miss him. I don't want us to miss him because we're looking for him in places where he'll, he's not to be found. I want us to see him for who he actually is. And it begins here with his genealogy. So this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The whole point of Matthew's book is to help the Jews understand that Jesus is the Messiah. They knew that he would come from the line of David and the line of Abraham. He'd be a son of Abraham. And he'd be a king in the lineage of David, a son of David. So Matthew begins his, his gospel by saying, Jesus is who you think he is. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David. But this story of Jesus' origin is gonna tell us more than we understand really at first glance. Now for a Jew, and probably in a lot of ancient cultures, when you wrote a genealogy, people would memorize the genealogy because it's how you remember where you've come from. It's the conversations you have at holidays. It's, you gotta memorize it. It's not written down. But when Matthew begins to write it down, what you can do in this culture is you pick and choose who you want in your genealogy. And truthfully, it's not just that culture. We do it today, don't we? Like when you tell stories about your family, aren't there people you leave out? And then you get married and somebody shows up to your wedding and your wife's like, I don't, who is this? Like, oh, I forgot to tell you about him. He's been in prison for 20 years. I just forgot that that's who he is and, Right, we leave, we leave certain people out. We highlight other people because we like what they bring to the table. And sometimes we highlight things that aren't true. It started with one moment, like one high school football game. And then it turns into now they're a Hall of Famer that should have been in the Hall of Fame, but they didn't have that bum knee in college. Like that's what it turns into. So it's the same thing here. Matthew could have written the genealogy however he wanted to. And for most Jewish genealogies, women are not in included. And that's because they're trying to trace the lineage of the family name. That's what they're trying to trace. But you're gonna notice in Matthew's genealogy, he lists some women, which is a huge thing for the original hearers of this to have heard that these women are listed. He lists people who aren't Jewish, people who are Gentiles, which messes with the whole Jewish ideal of the, who this Messiah would be. But I hope for you and me today that it does the same kind of thing for us today. Let's go into it. Matthew chapter one, verse two. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob. Now, these three are the pillars. These are the pillars of the Hebrew faith of, of Judaism. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You hear it quoted. He is the, um, the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is great. But the problem for us is we've got a lot of distance between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we've got some uh, misinformed understanding about who they are. In the very same way, when I was growing up, we had a president by the name of Ronald Reagan. Now for me, I only knew him as president, but for some people, they knew him as actor Ronald Reagan. And I was like, come on, there's no way. Like there's no way someone, an actor could become president. And then I grew up and then we had Donald Trump as a president. And I was like, whoa, what, you can? Because I knew him as, you're fired. That's who I knew. I knew, that's who I knew him as. And then he becomes president, right? And so there's a generation now that only knows him as President Donald Trump. And they're missing a whole history of who this man is that you can find, I'm sure, on YouTube somewhere. But they're missing a lot of it. Let me give you another one. 
when I grew up, um, we knew Carson Daly as the host of TRL. Anybody else Carson Daly fans? Yeah, right? Now he's like a legit co-host of what? Good Morning America or Today Show or something like that? Like that's not the, that's not the Frosted Tips Carson Daly that I knew. So I don't know. There are people growing up thinking he's like a legit reporter. I'm like, you don't know. Like you don't know. I saw him interview with Christina Aguilera one time and that's not how you report things. That's not what happened. And then for some of us, um, we grew up with Charles Barkley as a really good basketball player. And now you know him as a TNT co-host who just eats donuts all the time. I'm like, no, he's a hall of fame. Like he was one of the best players of all time, right? So when we read Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's the same thing. We have recency bias. We think, oh yeah, we hear about them. Let me tell you some stuff about Abraham. Abraham was promised by God in Genesis that through his lineage would come the hope of the world. He would bless the world. The problem was he and his wife, Sarah, were older and they didn't have any children. So there's no way this was going to happen. And so this man, the first man listed in the genealogy of Jesus, he and his wife made a plan for Abraham to sleep with his wife's maidservant that she would become pregnant. And they would have a line through that way. They grew impatient waiting for God. And so they made a plan for Abraham to sleep with his wife's maidservant. First name listed. Isaac and Jacob, not a whole lot better that happens through there if you understand some of that story, but we don't have time for it. So I wanna get into a couple more things. This next line, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Now watch this. Watch this carefully in verse three. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar or Tamar. Now, that's fine. Until you understand this, Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. I'm gonna let that sink in for a second. Then I'm gonna read it again with that understanding. Verse three. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Do I need to draw pictures? Are we good? We understand what's happening here. The Jerry Springer implications are all over what's just happened. This is the genealogy, the origin story of our savior, Jesus Christ. So a few things about Tamar. First, she's a woman. Again, women wouldn't have been listed in the genealogy, so it's meant for the original hearers to just pique their attention. Tamar is also not a Jewish woman. She is a Canaanite woman. We just finished the book of Exodus. They're about to conquer the land of Canaan. They're told to get rid of all the Canaanite people but they intermarry, all sorts of things happen. So she's not Jew, she's what's called a Gentile. This is who Tamar is. So already two strikes. And then here's the story. Genesis chapter 38. Tamar marries Judah's son named Ur. They get married, no children. Uh, so there's no one to pass on the lineage. She gets married again, same thing happens. Judah's wife passes away and Judah begins to fancy Ladies of the night, let's say. Judah um, likes that. He likes to pay for that kind of companionship, and so he does. And Tamar recognizes that, and she's trying to get in with him, trying to figure out some stuff. And so she dresses like up like a lady, like a prostitute. She dresses up like And she has a veil over her face, which was common for the prostitutes. And Judah uh, sees her walking and propositions her ends up sleeping with her and she becomes pregnant with twins of her father-in-law, whose names are Zerah and Perez. This is the origin story of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
This is the kind of mess that's in it. Continues in verse three, Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. So if Tamar, if Tamar dressed up like a prostitute, Rahab was the real deal. Like she wasn't dressing up. Rahab was a prostitute. And most scholars would tell you she actually ran a hotel for prostitutes in the city of Jericho. Well, Joshua sends men, spies into Jericho. They're gonna conquer the land. He sends spies in. And the spies are being chased by the enemy and they find solace. They find a safe place in Rahab's place, in her hotel. And then Rahab then is approached by the authorities and she lies to them saying, no, there's no spies in here. So if you're paying attention, Rahab throughout the Old Testament is referred to as Rahab the harlot. I don't know what kind of high school nicknames you had, but hers in the Old Testament was always, it was always connected. It was never sweet little Rahab. It was never Rahab the redhead. This was Rahab the harlot. This is what she was. And she is known for lying. This is her claim to fame. Her claim to fame is that she's a harlot who has lied. Also, you need to know, Rahab is not a Jewish woman either. Rahab is a Canaanite woman, a Gentile in the lineage, in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew begins the origin story of Jesus with a woman who dresses up like a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law and a woman who is legitimately a prostitute who lied to authorities. This is the story of Jesus. Continues, Boaz was the father of Ruth. Now, Ruth doesn't have quite the seated past uh, like Tamar and Rahab, but also a woman and a Gentile, a Moabite. And the Jews hate the Moabites. And then we keep reading. The end of verse five, and Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David, the king. And then watch the word choice here from Matthew. And David the father, was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So far he's listed other women's names, but for some reason, he doesn't tell us the name of this wife of Uriah. Her name is Bathsheba. But what Matthew is doing is he's referencing back to the fact that David, King David, a man after God's own heart, slept with another man's wife. And with all the tact in the world, Matthew says, by the husband, or by uh, the wife of Uriah. Second Samuel chapter 11, Matthew, or David is a king. He's a king of God's people and it's the springtime, which means you should be out leading your men in battle as a king. That was your job. But David stays back and he goes up on the roof and while he's on the roof, he sees a woman bathing and her name is Bathsheba. And he sees her bathing and he has her summoned to him. And then he sleeps with her. Some say it was forcibly, some say it was consensual. Either way, it's wrong. And he sleeps with Bathsheba, who is the wife of the lead general of his army named Uriah. She becomes pregnant. And so David decides he's got to figure out how to fix this. So he brings Uriah home from battle 
and tries to convince him to go home and be with his wife. Because that way, if he would sleep with his wife, then it would look like this child was uh, Uriah's child instead. But Uriah, the righteous man and loyal man that he is, says, no, 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 I've committed to you, David. I've committed to the military. I'm gonna sleep right here on the steps. So David's like, well, that didn't go as I planned. Long story short, David ends up having Uriah killed in battle. The lineage of Jesus, Tamar, who dressed up like a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law, Rahab, a legit prostitute, Ruth, a Moabite woman, and David, an adulterer and a murderer. We're six verses in to the gospel of Jesus, of Matthew. Six verses. Like, you could have just, the honor ramp could have been a little bit longer, you know what I mean? But he, just, he goes after it. And then he mentions the wife of Uriah, whose name was Bathsheba. Now, this origin story of Jesus is a mess, is it not? And we're one third of the way through. I mean, just wait till we get to the kings. They're awful people. Six verses in, a third of the way through the genealogy of Jesus, and this is the mess we found ourselves in. We're in a mess of gender. We're in a mess of ethnicity. We're in a mess of morality. And this is how Matthew has chosen to tell the story of Jesus. And he's highlighting the point to the Jews. You've missed Jesus because you don't want to talk about this stuff. Because you don't want to deal with the mess. And what the Jews had done is they built, again, a kingdom and a king of their own imagination what the Messiah was going to be like. And he was going to be uh, more like Saul than like David. He's gonna be an, an authoritative ruling king who would ride in on a white horse and save the day. He's gonna overthrow the Roman government. He would have been pure from a pure lineage. This is what he would have been, which is why they cleaned up the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They cleaned it all up to make, to make them feel better about this Messiah that was coming. But the truth is, you and I do the same thing in 2022. We create our own kingdoms and our own ideals about who Jesus is. And from this idea of who Jesus is and where he's come from, then we build our ideas of church. And then we decide who gets to be in and who gets to be out when it comes to church and the gathering of the saints. We built the same kingdom. And so when we tell the lineage of our church or of our people, there are things we live out, leave out, are there not? Daryl has talked for a while about wanting to do a VH1 behind the music on the history of 200 years of this church. And it would read a lot like this but we leave stuff out. We build our own kingdoms and our own ideas. And then like the Jews, we fight to protect what we have built. So there are people that we call invaders that we would never allow into a lineage, to a genealogy, to a people. Well, this genealogy of Jesus, the origin story of Jesus actually is who he is. And so you read stories about the ministry of Jesus and the people that he hung out with it's not a stretch to believe he hung out with them because they were his people. They were just like his family. That's why he was drawn to people like that. In John chapter four, Jesus makes this statement to the disciples about the fields being white for harvest. And you've heard it at every missions conference you've ever been to. But the context of this statement is amazing. So John chapter four, I'm gonna begin in verse 35. And it'll be on the screen. John chapter four, verse 35. It's another apostle, John, who writes his own gospel. 
Then John 4, 35 begins. Jesus says to the disciples, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Now, this statement is not theoretical. He's literally telling them to look, to lift up your eyes. And then he makes this statement and see that the fields are white for harvest. What that means is it's ready to be plucked. It's ready to, to be reaped. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So let me give you some context of what's happening here. Jesus pretty early on in his ministry and he has to make his way uh, north. But to get north, there's an area in the way called Samaria. Jews hate Samaritans. They consider them half-breeds. It's a whole thing. Like the most prejudice of all prejudices was the Jews to the Samaritans. From the beginning of John chapter four, Jesus tells his disciples, we have to go through Samaria. The King James word reads, we must needs go through Samaria. So he tells them we have to go through. They're like, no, we don't have to go through. Every other Jew for hundreds of years has gone around Samaria. We don't have to go through Samaria. And Jesus takes them through Samaria. When they get to Samaria, it's the middle of the day and there's a well in the middle of town where the women would come to draw water for the day for their families. And most women would come in the morning to draw their water. But Jesus meets a woman there in the middle of the day and she's come in the middle of the day because she probably had a nickname a lot like Rahab did. So she comes in the middle of the day because she is shamed and despised by people. She's, she's, the, she's the joke of the town. She comes to the well and Jesus is sitting there. And this woman is the first person that Jesus tells that he is the Messiah. He's having a conversation with her and he says something about her husband and she says, oh, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus says, I know, you've actually had five of them. And the man you're sleeping with right now is not your husband. Which is probably not, the way you're taught to do evangelism, but it's the way that Jesus did it. So they have this conversation and he tells her, hey, if you want water that will never run out, you'll never be thirsty again. You can drink from the living water. And she says, tell me where to get this water. He's like, it's me. I'm the water. I'm the living water. I am the Messiah. And so she runs into town to tell everybody about what just happened. And while she's running into town, the disciples come back from trying to get food and they come back. And, or actually, she's still there with Jesus. And the Bible reads that they were astonished that Jesus was at the well talking to that woman. Now, astonished is a very polite way to say very disturbed that Jesus was sitting at the well talking to that woman. But then the Bible says, but they knew better than to say anything to him, so they don't. They say, you're... They can't believe he is with this woman, talking to this woman. So she runs and tells everybody. And when Jesus says to look up, here's what he's telling them to look up at. Look at verse 39 of John chapter four. Many Samaritans from that town, what town? Samaria, believed in him, in Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. Here was her testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there. Stayed where? Samaria for two days. 
And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. When Jesus says, lift up your eyes, look. What he's telling the disciples to look at is, look at all these Samaritans coming to me and look who's leading them. The harlot by the well, look. And he's telling them the harvest is ready. The question for the disciples is, are you? Are you ready for this kind of ministry? Because I think the implication is, if you're following me to get some kind of prestige, if you're following me to get the attention and adoration and the reputation the Pharisees have, you're following the wrong guy. But if you're following me to go into the mess and to find the messy people, then let's go. The harvest is plentiful. It's white for harvest. Are you gonna go with me? Are you ready? And when he looks at the harvest, what he sees is he sees people just like his family. He sees the Tamars and the Rahabs and the Ruths and the Davids and the Bathshebas. That's who he sees. So why does Jesus have a conversation with the woman at the well? Because the woman at the well was a woman of the wrong ethnicity with a seedy, shady, immoral background, which sounds a lot like Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba, does it not? So this ministry of Jesus began at his origin. What he does has come out of who he is. But then the question for us is, but why, like why, 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 why would Matthew start this way? Like why would he begin the gospel this way? My argument is, is because he saw himself in that genealogy. In Matthew chapter nine, Jesus has begun to call disciples to follow him. In Matthew chapter nine, verse nine, the story is as Jesus passed on from there, he's going, as he was going, he saw a man called Matthew, the Matthew of this gospel, sitting at the tax booth. Now, why is he at the tax booth? Is he paying taxes? No, 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 he's collecting taxes. Matthew is a tax collector. Matthew is a Jew who has been employed by the enemy, the Roman government, to collect really undue taxes from the Jews. And if you think you don't like our tax structure, I would encourage you to revisit some of this tax structure. And Matthew was in charge of collecting taxes from his very people in his district and then handing that money over to the Jews or if the people could not pay, handing the people over to the Romans. He was hated by the Jews and Jesus, a Jewish Messiah, sees Matthew at the tax booth and tells him, follow me. So Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, so now, not just following, now they're having a meal together. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners, and sinners is a very Greek way of saying prostitutes. The tax collectors and prostitutes came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Sounds like John chapter four, doesn't it? He calls one and then they all come. So now they're all sitting there and they're eating with Jesus. And when the Pharisees saw this, verse 11, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
So here is what's amazing about Jesus and his genealogy. Tamar in the Old Testament would later be called righteous. Rahab is listed among the heroes of our faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Ruth has her own book in the Bible. Most scholars would tell you the Proverbs 31 woman described by Solomon is actually his mother, Bathsheba. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are listed as heroes of our faith in Hebrews 11, and David would be called a man after God's own heart. The woman at the well became a missionary. A tax collector became a disciple. Why is Matthew telling the story this way? Because it's his story. Because this is who he knows Jesus to be. And so when Matthew reads the genealogy of Jesus featuring Tamar and Rahab, Ruth and David and Bathsheba, Matthew's not turned off by it. Matthew is drawn in by it. For Matthew, if this is what our king is like, maybe I have hope. If this is what his family is like, if this is, if this is who he is, maybe I've got a shot. So when Jesus calls Matthew at the tax booth, and then Matthew decides to write his own account of the life of Jesus, you better believe he's putting those people in there. Because the story of the lineage of Jesus is the story of Matthew. And the truth is, it's the story of you and me as well. This is the origin story of our king. This is what he was like, and this is what he is still like today. He came to seek and to save the lost. In Matthew 9, he says, it's not the healthy who need a physician, it's the sick. Don't you know that I've come for them? So you've heard the adage maybe that the church should be a hospital for the sick. Well, there's three ways to run a hospital based on my vast knowledge of running hospitals, but uh, from what I've understood, um, I think one way to run a hospital is that when people come in with sickness is that you celebrate their sickness. You, you love how sick they are, but you don't heal the sickness or offer anything to help with the sickness. You just invite them in because the more sick people you have, the more money you get, right? The more, the more you get. So you don't heal them because then it's over. And so there's one way to run a hospital is that you celebrate sickness. Oh, I love that about you. It's not that big of a deal. It's totally fine. It might cost you some things, but it's fine. Come on in. Can you help me? No, I can't help you, but you can be with the rest of us sick people. The second way to run a hospital is that you don't let any sick people in because they're too contagious. And so when the sick people come to the hospital and they go through triage, you're like, ah, I don't know, man. Like, that's really, really gross. And I don't want our people to be infected. Like, I don't want the doctors to be infected by your sickness. So no, you cannot be here. You gotta go somewhere else. And the third way to run a hospital is that when the sick come to the hospital, you have doctors and nurses who are like, oh yeah, I know that disease. In fact, I used to have it. And I know a healer who can help. Come in, let's get the remedy. Come on in, come on in. So maybe in today's world, there are a lot of churches that operate like the first hospital. You're not gonna call sin, sin. Not gonna address the disease. Not gonna address the issue at all. I'm just gonna celebrate the fact that you're human and so we love you. Problem with that is no one's being healed. No one's being helped. Many of us might've grown up in churches like the second hospital where sin was, the sickness of sin was highly condemned, but never treated. 
And in fact, if that was you, you were told not to come back here ever again. But the church that's found on the gospel of Jesus Christ has a room full of people who would say, yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm, I'm like Tamar or Rahab and Ruth, David and Bathsheba. I know a way to get healed. Come on in. Come sit with us. Come worship with us. Come to my small group. Come with us. So maybe today what you need to hear is that if your life is anything like those people, if your life is anything like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and David and Bathsheba, you're Jesus' kind of people. He's drawn to people like you because you're just like his family. And like Tamar being called righteous and like Ruth getting her own book of the Bible and like David being called a man after God's own heart and like Bathsheba being the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, there's hope when you meet Jesus that your sickness can be done away with. But maybe for many of us, the issue is not us. The issue is the way we see other people. And you've built this really clean Jesus and this really clean church. And what's happening in the first six verses of Matthew is that you're going to wrestle with a few things about this clean Jesus you've created. He comes from a mess and he loves running to messes. So if you're trying to protect some kind of weird pseudo-Christian kingdom you've created by keeping the Tamars and the Rahabs and the Ruths and the Davids and the Bathshebas out, you're missing Jesus completely. So maybe you have to wrestle with the fact that there are people that you would consider invaders in your kingdom. But maybe this morning for some of us, maybe we've already identified as one of those people. We have a hard time with a son or a daughter or a grandchild or an aunt or an uncle or a cousin who's living their life like Tamar and Rahab. Bathsheba and David and Ruth. Well, I want to encourage you with some hope here this morning that Jesus runs to people like that. And if you've got a wayward spouse or a wayward child, the best thing you can do is intercede on their behalf that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, whose origin story is full of people like them, would meet them where they are and would draw them back to healing today. And maybe maybe it begins with a phone call that you make, a conversation that you have with them. I spent a lot of my life thinking people like Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, David, and Bathsheba had no business being in the lineage of Jesus until I painfully realized I am them. And by the grace of God, I am now a son of the Most High King. And the lineage continues now through me. You bow your heads and close your eyes. Just want us to honestly wrestle with what we thought Jesus was like. And I just wonder how many of us have missed him because we've cleaned him up too much. We've missed him because we've cleaned up the stories too much. We've left some things out. I would imagine that for many of us, we've left things out of our story because we're ashamed of them. Well, I want to give you hope and power today. You have to revisit those things to bring them to the light like Jesus' genealogy. Because when you do, you're gonna find yourself in the community of people who are just like you.
and you have met the resurrected Jesus. So are you ashamed of your sin in the past? Good for you. It's not a reason to keep it hidden. The enemy loves the soil of darkness and secrecy. This genealogy gives us hope that we can confess openly and repent. If someone rejects you because of your confession, they need to read Matthew chapter one. So I wonder how many of us today find ourselves feeling more like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and David, but she was feeling like we don't deserve this. We don't deserve to be in this line. Would you raise your hand and say, yeah, just I identify with them. I don't feel like I don't deserve it. I feel like I'm not good enough. I'm dirty. I'm unclean. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. How many of you this morning would say, no, I think for me, the issue is I see those people as invaders into my really clean kingdom. It makes me uncomfortable to think that Jesus had people like that in his life. Would you raise your hand just honestly in boldness and say, yeah, I struggle with that. I really struggle with people like that. That's hard for me to wrap my mind around. Yeah, praise the Lord for your honesty. How many of you today would say, no, maybe it's, it's, it's not me, but I've, man, I've got someone close to me living a life um, that's taking them further away and I'm beginning to lose hope for them. Would you raise your hand and say, yeah, I've got somebody like that. I'm losing hope for them. Mm. Let's just, I'm, I'm gonna pray. Mallory's just gonna play. And if you need to come forward and pray at the altar, you're more than welcome to do that. We have staff and elders who'd love to pray with you. But I'm just gonna pray over us today. And if you feel like you're too far to be rescued by the King of Kings, I need you to read this again to know. You're never too far. Jesus has come to save people just like you. And you first have to admit that you're like them you are one of them and that you desperately need a savior. You've tried to cover it up. You've tried to clean it up, but now you're just gonna admit it. I'm broken, I'm messed up and I need a king. I need a savior to rescue me. And you confess that Jesus is that king. You're gonna devote your life to following him. You'll find salvation there. You'll find freedom and healing there. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the power of your word. I thank you that stuff like this is in it. Because I think it authenticates the Bible. No one went through with a with whiteout to clean it up. This is what we get. I'm thankful to know that your ministry, the ministry of Jesus on earth, that met with the tax collectors and the sinners, that ran after the broken and the needy and the crippled. He didn't just make it up. It's in his very DNA. It's who he is. And I'm thankful that you were drawn to someone like me. And I'm thankful that you've taken me from the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock. So in the room today, God, there are Tamars who will one day be called righteous. There are Rahabs who will one day be celebrated for their faith. There are Abraham, Isaacs, and Jacobs who will become pillars of faith for generations. There are Davids who will be called a man after your own heart. And there are Bathshebas who would one day be the picture of a virtuous woman. May we have hope that as long as we're still breathing, you're not done with us yet. Pray for those wrestling with the fear of family members and friends. God, I pray that they would um, beg earnestly for you to intercede. That we would celebrate them. We would celebrate their restoration in days to come. 
It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.